Revelation 4 and verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion and the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures had each of them six wings about them and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is is to come. And when those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that is seated on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that is seated on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. It is not often in my lifetime that I can actually say, that I really experienced what it is like to be in the presence of God. And when we do, the only thing we can do is to bow before him. Words will escape us. That was the case when Solomon dedicated the temple. All those singers, dancers, the Levites, the glory of God filled the temple and they could not stand to do their service. I pray that we might experience what it is like to be sitting in the presence of God. Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts today that we might see the tremendous work that you did through Jesus Christ on Calvary that we are very little acquainted with. But our lives would not be the same today if you had not given your one and only son to die on our behalf. And what he has accomplished, we words cannot express it. The Apostle Paul wrote things inspired by the Holy Spirit Sometimes I even wonder if he was able to really express what was in his heart and what you'd shown him. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes this morning to see something of the glories of Jesus. And as a result of our being here, our lives will be changed. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I had this open. Uh, let's see here. 
Okay. Uh, Cora read this morning from the Lord's Prayer in John 17, in which Jesus said to the Father, He says, Father, you are in me, and I in you. And what he was praying for, he says, that those that will believe me on account of you, that they will be one in us. Then he goes on to say, I in them, and you in me. This is difficult to comprehend with our natural minds, because God is so great. Our tendency is to ask the question, how does this all work out? And I need to see an explanation of it. And I think this is one of those things which is really a mystery of what God has shown us through the death of Christ. The subject I want to speak on this morning is Christ in us. This is not disconnected from the previous messages. So I'd just like to go over them briefly to bring you to the point that we're going to look at today. So a number of weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter 6 in which we are set free from the power of sin. And it's stated this way, and this is from the Amplified Version. We know that our old self that is, our human nature without the Holy Spirit, was nailed to the cross with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the person who has died with Christ has been freed from the power of sin. And the explanation of that is very simple in the fact that when we die physically, we are separated from sin. We're no longer capable of sinning. So that's exactly the case with this. Jesus died. He was separated from. And then he goes on in that chapter. Paul writes, he says, Sin shall no longer have dominion over you because you're not under law but under grace. Let me word that in the reverse without changing the meaning of it. If that was to have been written down in the reverse... If you're still under law, you're still under the dominion of sin. It's the same meaning. If you're still under law, you're still under the dominion of sin. If we have a problem with sin, we have not been released from the power of the law. Because when we live by grace, living by grace alone, because we have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit directs the believer's attention to Christ, which is a preventative to our sinning. That was Romans 6 that we covered. So we died to sin. Romans 7, it says, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, that is to him, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So there is a necessity, first of all, to be set free from sin, but that which, which condemns us, we need to be set free from. That's why Paul writes Romans chapter 7. 
And the only way in which we can be set free from the law once again is to die. We therefore have died to, to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be married to Christ. If we think that by keeping the law that we're going to bear fruit to God, we do not. It's impossible. But once we are set free from that and we have been married to Christ, we bear fruit to God. That's what I think the majority of believers would want to be doing, is bearing fruit to God. That's when that event takes place. Now, what's amazing about Christianity is all of these subjects that we've been looking at over the course of the summer all transpire in a moment of time when the person turns to Christ for salvation. All of the things that we enter into, the good of Christianity, our redemption, our justification, and the list goes on and on, all took place the moment we believed. What we're doing here is sort of parsing them out one at a time to try and get an understanding of what has changed our lives. So if we've been set free from sin, if we've been set free from the law, once those two barriers to our being reconciled with God have been removed, there then is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Anything that could have condemned us has been removed. And all of that was done at the cross through what Christ has done. So then what happens to the law? It becomes the question by many. So is it done away with? And Paul says, no, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's holy and it's just. Jesus says that the law will continue until there's a new heaven and a new earth. But what happens for the believer So it goes on to say in Romans 7, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us because we have been born again. When we've been born again, God put into that as part of the new covenant is I will put my laws in their minds and in their hearts and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. As part of the new covenant, God has then put and established his laws in the hearts and minds of believers so that we do not want to disobey. It's no longer a demand, it's a promise. But this is the life of a believer. We won't murder. We won't covet. That's to become the life of the believer. But notice one thing Paul does not say. He says... This has happened so that righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He doesn't say, if you walk according to the Spirit, or when you walk according to the Spirit. This is our life. Sometimes we're not what we ought to be. 
But that doesn't change anything. He says, you do not walk according to the flesh because you're a believer and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. So he doesn't say it's conditional on your behavior. It's not. We have it because God has given it to us. Now, all of these things where we're looking at the crucifixion, our death, and our burial with Christ is something that God did. There's nothing that we could do to make any of this happen. God then placed us into Christ so that what he experienced and went through, that we're to do the same, but there's a reason for it. So we're never made right before God by keeping the law. We're made righteous before God through faith in Christ Jesus. Then God declares us to be righteous. That being the case, one thing that we need to realize in living the Christian life is that we are no longer our own. What do I mean by that? This is what Paul says. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. If a believer thinks that they are in charge of their life, may I say, if a pastor thinks that they are in charge of their life, they are living in the flesh. We are not our own, we've been bought with a price. The way in which God works in the believer's life is he gives us directions through the Holy Spirit's promptings as to where he would have us be and have us minister. I've had discussions with a neighbor of mine down the hall. She'll be 91 shortly. And at the age of 91, and she will phone me generally every Monday morning, how did it go at church yesterday, Dave? And then she tells me of things, people that God has brought into her life. She's not going out preaching. She's not going out probably to Tim Hortons to talk to somebody. She still drives. She's amazing. She's got her mind. Truly amazing lady. And she says, you know, Dave, God brings people into my life. And I share my life. And that's to be the life of a believer. We are not our own. Our time is not our own. We can say, oh, this is an interruption. Somebody's come into my life, they want to talk to me. No, no. That's all part of God's plan. That's the Christian life. But here's the thing. All of these subjects that we've been covering here when God placed us into Christ so that what happened to him happens to the believer, all of these things God did in order to set us free from who we were before we were saved. In other words, who we were is born of Adam's race. And we have a will of our own and we want to do what we want to do. God placed us into Christ so that at some point in our life we don't get it to start with. But at some point in our life, God shines a light on the fact that you, Dave, have been crucified. You died. You were buried. 
He did that so that I might be set free from my tendencies to do what is wrong. That was the reason that God put us into Christ. Uh, Let me just read what Paul says here just to give you an idea. Some of us can relate to this. Some of us may not be able to relate to this. But this is what Paul says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me in that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Paul goes over this and he tells us about times when he persecuted the church and so on. This is who he used to be. And that's why God has put us into Christ to set us free from who we used to be, which then leads us into the subject of today, which is Jesus Christ in the believer. There are very few references in the scriptures to this kind of a statement. We have most of the scriptural references to what it was when God placed us into Christ. But at the same time he did that, Jesus Christ came to live within us the moment that we were saved. Galatians says, I, according to the flesh, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. At the point at which we might think this is a terrible experience to go through, that I'm having to die in order that I might live, God says no. Because when Christ comes to live within you, this is part and parcel of what happened to Christ. He not only was crucified, he died, he was buried, but he was raised again. Christ in us then is what takes us out of the scene of death into life. And we have been granted life from God in order to live the Christian life. So Paul says it's now that Christ lives in me. I, the old Paul, that did all these things wrong, has been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me stop there for a minute because... um, Perhaps no one here has actually looked at some of the translations on this verse. Uh, If they have, they should have come and and corrected me on this and said, that's not what the scripture says, Dave. And I'm not sure there's about three translations that refer to it this way. Let me explain. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by the faith of the Son of God or I believe in my faith in the Son of God. And there's a big difference. If I put my faith in the Son of God, we all know in our lifetimes, there's many times when we'd say, well, my faith is too weak. Our faith is like this. It's up and down. There's times when we've got great faith. But if this is correct, and I believe it to be correct, Paul says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Is there anything 
in which Jesus Christ is not going to be always living in faith. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So if I live by his faith, it's never up and down like this. We then have a normal Christian life because I'm living by the faith of the Son of God. Lord, I don't have the faith that's required for this situation. But he does. Lord, I'm giving you over to you this situation. I don't have enough faith to go through this. But he does. And he carries us through. I've had to do this a number of times in my lifetime. And I'll tell you, it's difficult. I don't know what this, how far to go with this because some people might listen to this online. How, how am I going to put this? We all have problems, relational problems. Let's put it that way. Anybody from close to far in relationships. And when we see someone that we love wandering off, getting into trouble, if you're a parent especially, that begins to weigh on you. And there have been times in my life when that situation, that crisis weighed on me to the extent I had to come to realize I can't, but God can. And I've said, Lord, I cannot carry this burden. I'm leaving this with you. I have faith that the Lord will see it through, but he can see it through. My faith might be weak in the situation. It might be tested, dearly tested, extremely tested. But when I did that, and without exception, I can say this honestly without exception, at the end of that crisis, when I gave it over to God and he took it over, everything was settled. The outcome was better than I could have ever expected. That's the kind of trust we need. But if I'm going to live in the flesh, I'm going to come up with the answers. I'm going to do my best to rectify the situation. That's the difference between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. So Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In Romans 8, he says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Visualize this. If Christ has actually come to live within inside of us, and we have been left after salvation with a, a body that's decaying and a flesh that has the tendency to sin, what's that picture look like? If Christ is living in us, Paul says, our body is dead because of sin. It does not mean that we don't have the tendencies to want to sin because we're still in this flesh and we don't always succeed when we're tempted. But this is what we need to do in Christianity. When God says you died with Christ, believe it. We don't have to explain it. He says, now you, your body is dead because of sin. 
Count it to be so. Don't pander to it. Your body is dead because Christ is now living in you. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. When we receive the righteousness of God in Christ when we were saved, that is the spirit of life that has come into us. If there's no evidence of life in a believer, it's a question mark. Why should we not have some sort of enthusiasm and life? I have seen this with many here where I might share a scripture and that person comes back with another scripture and the next thing we're into a deep conversation about things. Whereas there can be other people that you could do the same thing with and you get no response. Something's wrong. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That, I think, is probably a two-part. When we come to salvation, God then, through his spirit, gives life to these mortal bodies. Where these bodies were once dead, as far as God was concerned, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. When the Holy Spirit comes into the believer and he dwells in us, he gives life to these mortal bodies so there's an expression of the work of God in each of us. That's how it works. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, we've got to be walking in the Spirit, we're not going to be able to do it on our own in the power of our flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is not a one-time event. This is a constant struggle that we as believers face day in and day out. But we need to be in communication with the Holy Spirit constantly to help us to put to death the deeds of the body. We're faced with choices to make. Constantly. And if that choice satisfies my flesh and I get some kind of thrill or excitement out of it, the Holy Spirit immediately is already going at work to try and prevent me from making that choice. Why do I say that? I think we have the example when Jesus spoke to Peter at the time when he says the cock shall not uh, crow three times before, twice before you've denied me three times. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. He did that before Peter failed. Likewise in the believer's life, the Holy Spirit knows us. He lives within us. Jesus lives within us. And John 17 says the Father lives in Jesus, so he lives in us. They immediately go to work. The Holy Spirit goes to work. The focus is on Christ. The problem we have is that we're now left with a decision to make. Is this what I'm going to follow? And this, am I going to listen to the Holy Spirit? Or am I going to satisfy my flesh? This is a constant thing as long as we're in these bodies. One day, thankfully, we'll be free from it. 
But if we do, we will live. If we don't and we follow the inclinations of our flesh, it results in death. And it's prevalent around the world. Those that are unbelievers are making wrong decisions. Families are being separated. Husbands and wives are divorcing within the church and without the church. The whole key to this is the Holy Spirit. So prior to salvation, we were under the influence of the flesh and spiritually dead. When we are saved from our sins and receive the Holy Spirit, God declares us to be righteous, resulting in us becoming spiritually alive. The Spirit enables us to put to death our sinful desires and live a victorious life. This is the point that I want to get to today. And this is, there was a, a mystery that has been hidden. And if you read Paul's writings, there are two mysteries in particular that he speaks about. That God had given him insight into these two mysteries. One of them was the mystery of the church, hidden throughout time. In the Old Testament time, there is no reference to the church. In God's mind, there was going to be a church. He had planned that before the beginning and the foundation of the world. God had a plan. And this was part of a mystery that was hidden. Now Paul also writes about this other mystery. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affections of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, which is, whoops, did I, which is the mystery revealed to his saints, Yes, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The purpose for God putting us into Christ was to do away with the first man. His purpose in having Christ come into our lives is so that it gives us hope for the future. You get that? In Christ, so that we get rid of who we used to be, we don't need to carry that old man forward. We need to operate under the power of the Holy Spirit. And at that point in time, he put Christ into us to give us hope for what is to come. Now, I think if I was to ask for a show of hands, that everybody here would be saying, boy, we sure need this today. We need hope for the future. I mean, things are going the wrong direction. No matter who you talk to, believers and unbelievers, they say, what is happening here? But for those of us that are believers, Christ in us gives us hope for the future. One thing, he's still alive. Sometimes we think he's up there somewhere, and we're we visualize that we're praying to God in heaven when all, all the time he's living in us. 
So I can talk to the Lord, you can talk to the Lord, the Holy Spirit, Father, anytime we want, 24-7. And as a result, that gives us hope, knowing that regardless what transpires in the world, there's something better ahead. There's a glory which the saints are hoping for that is unseen at the present time. So Paul writes in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. I think I'd be right in saying everyone here is going through some kind of suffering. Everyone. It can be job, relationships, spouses. Some of us have gone through that. There's sufferings of this present time. But there's going to come a day when we're going to be able to possibly look back and see that was nothing to go through compared with the glory. Now I'm in the presence of God. I'm seeing Jesus face to face. <laughs> I mean, that puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Our sufferings now, Flory, are nothing compared to what they're going to be. The glory when Christ is revealed. So this is going to repeat what I've been saying, but it needs to be reinforced. We were placed into Christ to free us from whom we were prior to salvation. Christ in us gives us hope for the future. This kind of hope is the assurance of good things to come. You see, we can use the word hope and we can say, well, I hope it's going to happen. That's not the kind of hope Paul's talking about here. This is an assurance of what is to come. It's not, I hope it will. This hope we have is sure because Christ says it is sure. He told us he's coming back and we have from the scriptures, we know that we are one day going to see him face to face and if that in itself is not glory, there's more things connected to that. We have Glory in the here and now. I haven't read this anywhere. Any comments on this anywhere? I think I'm correct. So take it for what it is. It's not written in stone, but I think this might be true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all aware of that scripture verse. God's standard to live by is the glory of God. That's a pretty high standard. Well above what the law could ever be given as a standard to live by. The glory of God is the standard, the bullseye that we're aiming for. But we cannot, that's an impossibility to ever reach that standard, is it? Moses put a veil over his face. This is when he came down from Mount Sinai. So the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. That glory that was on Moses' face, he put a veil on so that they wouldn't see that the glory that was on his face begin to diminish. It was a picture of the fact that the law at some point in time was going to be replaced. And we're conscious, we remember the scripture, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. 
as soon as Christ comes in, he now is superior to that. So it was passing. It was going to end. But he says, but their minds, the children of Israel, their minds were blinded for until this day. The same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. They cannot see it. I said they cannot see it. We cannot see it if we're still under law. We cannot. But the moment we turn to the Lord, that veil of being able to see the grace of God and to see the plan of salvation, to see a changed life, happens at that very moment. And the veil is taken away so that we can see. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, the one who turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What a thrill it is when we see that. Albert saw that in his uncle. There was a veil that he could not see through, right, Albert? He just could not get it. How come everybody else gets to understand this and I can't? There's a veil there that's been put up through wrong teaching. And the veil is covering the eyes. But once that person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away and suddenly they see everything clearly in the Christian life and what God had planned. But now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, our faces are no longer veiled. Behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Is it possible for us to reach God's standard of his glory? And I propose to you, yes, it is. But the only way in which we're ever going to reach that is by focusing on Jesus Christ. We all, as in a mirror, if you look in a mirror, who do you see? Maybe you need to change your mind. When you look in the mirror, are you seeing Christ? If Christ is in you, then people ought to be able to see it. I remember reading as a young person, something was written back in the 1800s. And this comment was made, if you tell me that Christ is in you, then let me see him. If Christ is really in you, let me see him. And that is the case. When a believer meets another believer that they've never seen before, we know that that's another believer. There's something about that person. Christ is shining through. That's what it is. So as we begin to focus in and look as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are gradually being transformed into his image from glory to glory to glory to glory. We have now reached the point where it's possible, not in and of ourselves, only through Christ who lives in us. This is now in the present. What about the future? The future glory of the believer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, this body is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. 
sown in weakness, it's raised in power. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The sooner that day comes, glory, the better. We've talked about it. The sooner that day, the better. When he comes, we will appear with him in glory because we will already have been with him in heaven. We will come back when he comes back to set up his kingdom on earth. You are not who you used to be because Christ lives in you. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also, by one man's obedience, many are made righteous. Let me ask you, do you view yourself as a sinner or as righteous? It's only one one or the other. One or the other. One man's disobedience, everyone was constituted a sinner. But by the obedience of Christ, we are now made righteous. Let me ask this question. Can or does Jesus Christ live in a sinner? Think about it for a bit. Does Christ live in a sinner? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All. We are no longer sinners. Do we sin? Yes. That does not make us sinners. That part has been removed. Our sins have been forgiven. That's an affront to God. That's strong words. Through one man's obedience, many have been made righteous. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. We need to start looking in the mirror and seeing that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. It's not by what we do and how we perform. It's what God says we are. If God says we are and we believe it to be true, our lives will reflect that. If I think I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, I'll live a life like a dirty, rotten sinner, and I will sin. But if I see myself as righteous, and I'm standing before God as righteous, may I say so, as much as Jesus Christ? That's what God has done. Nothing I could do of myself to become that kind of righteousness. And now... We have a glory and a hope of glory to look forward to. So you cannot be a sinner and a saint at the same time. That's impossible. I think the only thing that we can do at this point when we realize what God has done in placing us into Christ and Christ coming into us and giving us a hope for the future and that hope is glorious because we're going to be with Christ came to me as we sang the first hymn. Crown him with many crowns. He's worthy. He's worthy.